So Romans 3, 9, it reads this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They see their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and the paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Uh, please welcome Derek uh, as he preaches tonight. Hello. Thank you, Aaron, for reading that. Um, when I asked Aaron if he could read that, I told him that, um, that I prefer ES. Just because I kind of grew up with ESV, and Aaron says, I only have ESV. And I said, my man. <laughs> Anyways, uh, tonight we'll continue with our Why We Believe series. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, SFBC's fifth article of faith. So if you ever go on our website, there's articles of faith listed on there. This is the fifth one. It's titled, The Total Depravity of Man. Uh, and this is what it says in our article. It says, we believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God. But, that, but in that Adam's sin, the whole human race fell, inherited a sinful nature, and became alienated from God. And thus man is totally depraved, and of, it, of himself utterly unable to remedy his lost condition. Total depravity is the first of Calvinism's famous five points. Without getting too much into the history of the Reformation, um, Calvinism came from a theological system uh, that bore the name of a French theologian named John Calvin. And John Calvin was part of a renewal movement of the early 16th century. Uh, this renewal movement was known as the Reformation. And it really all started when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther took his 95 theses against the Roman Catholic practice of selling indulgences to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And this happened in October on October 31st, 1517, which is why sometimes we celebrate uh, Halloween as Reformation Day, like you might hear it as Reformation Day, um, although Halloween really means uh, All Saints Day. It's a celebration of all the saints. 
um, and martyrs as well. Uh, this bold act by a monk with a mallet launched the Reformation. Right? Other reformers would follow, such as uh, Zwingli, uh, Latmer, uh, Tyndale, um, John Rogers, and then you have John Calvin. They all were fully committed to the truths of Scripture and sovereign grace. In 1517, a Dominican na nomad named John Tetzel, Tetzel like pretzel, uh, began to sell indulgences, and those indulgences were not pretzels. But they began selling it near Wittenberg with the offer of the forgiveness of sins. And this crass practice had been inaugurated during the Crusades to raise money for the church. Commoners would, would purchase from the church uh, a letter that allegedly freed loved one from purgatory. Purgatory is this in-between state um, before it, it depends if, you know, it determines of their good deeds in purgatory, whether they will go to uh, heaven or whether they will go to hell. And Rome profited enormously from this sham. In this case, the proceeds were intended to help Pope Leo X pay for a new St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which Lindsay and I got to go visit. Um, it, was, it was really nice. They had original paintings and everything, and some guy just can't, kept chanting something in, in the auditorium. Or, I know, inside, he just kept saying, no photos, no video, no photo. And it just kept chanting and chanting. I was like, I'm getting out of here. This horrible abuse enraged Luther. He determined that there must be a public debate on the matter. So on October 31st, 1517, he nailed a list of 95 theses regarding indulgences to the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Nailing such theses to the church door was a common practice in the scholarly debates of the time. One of the 95 was this. He said, why does not the Pope whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus. Uh, Crassus was perhaps the richest man in Roman history. And he says, why not the Pope build the Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money of poor believers? Luther hoped to provoke calm discussion among the faculty. But a copy fell into the hands of a printer who saw that the 95 theses were printed, and he spread throughout Germany and Europe all of this, all the copy of these 95 theses in a few weeks. Luther became an overnight hero, and with that, the Reformation essentially was born to correct the Roman Catholic Church as they had distorted many biblical truths, right? And this is the very definition of being reformed. Right? It means to restore or bring back to their original condition. Many years later, Luther essentially inspired more reform reformers to be born, such as John Calvin. And John Calvin himself inspired others, and that led to a following with a theological system called Calvinism. Calvinism, I'm sorry, this is like a huge background on Reformed theology, but we're getting there. Calvinism came about to really oppose the teachings of Dutch theologian Jacob Arminius, whose five remonstrances 
um, these are five reasons or oppositions to uh, what the reformers presented in their thoughts. Uh, but they, he countered with five remonstrances. And he basically uh, had a bunch of followers take these five uh, oppositions and present it to a council. And uh, there was another council who was part of uh, Calvin, who was uh, followers of Calvin, that opposed these five things. And it was this response which gave rise to what has become known as the five points of Calvinism. So tonight, we'll look at the first of the five points, which is total depravity. And <clears throat> some scholars and commentators have noted that the name to this doctrine is somewhat misleading because it suggests a, a moral condition of utter depravity. And utter depravity means that a person is as wicked as he can possibly be. And utter suggests both total and complete corruption lacking even in civil virtue. The doctrine of total depravity, however, does not teach that a man is as wicked as he could possibly be. So there's a difference between utter depravity and total depravity. So for example, total depravity teaches that even someone like Adolf Hitler, who often serves as the paradigm of human evil, surely had some behavioral patterns that were not utterly base. Perhaps Hitler loved his mother and at times was even kind to her. The term total depravity in contrast to utter depravity refers to the effect of sin and corruption on the whole person. So to be totally depraved, right, is to suffer from corruption that pervades the whole person, right? Sin affects every aspect of our being, the body, the soul, the mind, the will, and so forth. The total or whole person is corrupted by sin. Sin reaches into every aspect of our lives, uh, finding no shelter of isolated virtue. So a lot of commentators have accepted a better term for the doctrine of total depravity to be called radical corruption. And the word radical derives from the Latin radix, which means root. To say that mankind is radically corrupt is to say that sin kind of penetrates to the core and being and to every aspect of our body. It flows from what the Bible calls the heart, which does not refer to that, that muscle that beats, you know, that pumps blood throughout our bodies, but to the core of our being. And even the word core derives from the Latin word for heart. And some, some believe that the reason why uh, total depravity has kind of prevailed was because it fits this acronym of TULIP. And it, it fits nicely, you know, to say TULIP. Um, and to, the acronym TULIP is a simple way to remember the five points of Calvinism in regards to salvation. So the letters for total depravity or for TULIP, the, the letters... The letters for TULIP is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So there's a lot we can talk about in regards to total depravity, but tonight we'll focus on three main concepts of total depravity. Um, 
So before I get there, I just want to pray really quick and ask that God would just be with us as we study Romans. Father, may you be exalted in just the passage that we are going to study tonight, Lord. As we look upon your grace, may we recognize just how fallen we were. Lord, uh, we ask for your help in just understanding this passage. May you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to fully love your word and to see just how depraved and lost we were until you came, Lord. And we thank you and pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. So the first concept is this. The corruption of all aspects of a person. The corruption of all aspects of a person. Jesus frequently described this condition with images drawn from nature, right? Just as a a corrupt tree yields corrupt fruit, so sin flows out of a corrupt human nature. In Matthew 7, 16 to 20, he talks about false prophets, right, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he says, you will recognize them by the fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. And R.C. Sproul said this, We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Since the fall, human nature has been corrupt. We are born with a sin nature. Our acts of sin flow out of this corrupted nature. The Apostle Paul said it best in our passage tonight, which Aaron uh, just read. And here, the the Apostle Paul speaks of our being under sin. Right? And we use this figurative language with respect to human conditions. We say, a diligent person is on top of his work, which means he has it under the control. Conversely, to be under things is to be under their control. When Paul speaks of our being under sin, he's using the same sort of language. To be under sin is to be controlled by our sin nature. Right? Sin is a weight or a burden that presses downward on our soul. It is to be under the the penalty of sin, to be under the power of sin, to be under the pollution of sin. To be under sin is to be enslaved to sin, to be dominated by sin. You're under the tyranny of sin. You're under the condemnation of sin. It's as if you're under this whole pile and you cannot get out from underneath it with your own efforts. And in bringing the whole human race before the tribunal of God, Scripture indicts us all without exception. It says, it says right here in verse 9, or actually, sorry, verse 10, it says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And the qualifying phrase, no, not one, makes it clear that the universal judgment is not hyperbole. This text, however, does not have Jesus in the moral uniqueness in view. It's evaluating the entire human race apart from Jesus. 
right? This condition of radical corruption or total depravity is the fallen state known as original sin. And the doctrine of original sin does not refer to the first sin committed by Adam and Eve, but the result of that first sin. So you guys get that? It's, it's not referring to the first sin that Adam and Eve committed. It's referring to the result of that first sin. Original sin is the corruption passed down to us by our first parents as punishment for the original transgression. Adam's sin nature has been passed down to the entire race and how it has radically corrupted the mind, the heart, the will, every inch and every ounce of humanity such that the mind is unable to think properly. And for any person to come up with their own understanding of how bad off they are, they can't, right? Apart from divine intervention. The heart loves what it should hate, and it hates what it should love. This is the mark of total depravity. Now, there are some Christians who think, okay, the mind and the heart are affected by sin, but the will is still free. But that is such a misunderstanding of the Bible. The will is simply a handmaiden of the mind and the heart. Where the mind and the heart is, the will follows, right? The will never operates independent of the mind and the heart. The will is the tail. The tail is not wagging the dog. The tail is simply following in behind the head and torso. So wherever the mind, wherever the heart, the affections, desires go, the will then always makes choices in accordance to the affections and to the mind. And what we have here is Paul's masterful use of the Old Testament to build his case one brick at a time. And he now makes this insurmountable case. And I want to give you a careful walkthrough of this. If you look at verse 11, he speaks of the mind and the heart. In verse 12, he speaks of the will. In verse 13, he speaks of the throat, the tongue, and the lips. In verse 14, he speaks of the mouth. In verses 15 through 17, he speaks of the feet. In verse 18, he speaks of eyes. Do you see that? You can draw a circle all around the different parts of the body, and they are all representative of human faculty, right? It speaks of the human condition. It speaks of the human character. It speaks of the human conversation that flows out of the character. It speaks of the human choices that are result of the character. This is a, com a comprehensive autopsy of the spiritually dead sinner, right? This stage here, if we were to take a dead corpse, right? kind of scary, but if we were to take a dead corpse and just lay the corpse out on the stage and start at the head and work our way down to the feet where every different part of body represents some aspect of human personality and the human nature. This is from A to Z, right? This is from coast to coast. This is from top of the head to bottom of feet. There's nothing, there's nothing left out. Every part of that corpse is dead. That's why we say total depravity. There's not one leg over here that's not dead and on the table or on the, on the stage. There's not some limb that somehow has not been poisoned by the venom of sin. So it's like taking a glass of water and having a syringe and injecting cyanide into that glass of water. 
right? That cyanide, cyanide will permeate the whole glass. There will not be any part of the glass of water that is not poisoned by the cyanide. Not one single person meets the divine standard to gain acceptance with God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And the word righteous means conformity to a standard. There is none righteous. And to be even more emphatic, God's word adds not even one. There's no exception, right? And as a footnote, this is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin, right? Remember when Pastor Henry spoke about this last week? He kind of said there's an importance of why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. It's so that the deadly fang of sin and its venom would not be injected into him because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. Therefore, God had prepared a body for him, and he had all the faculties of human nature, but without sin. So he says, there is none righteous, not even one. This is like the umbrella over the whole. And he, he almost starts with the bottom line. There is none righteous, not even one. So now he begins to walk through this, step by step. He goes to the mind. He says, there is none who understands. There is none who understands how guilty and condemned they are before God. There is none who understands that their only way of escaping is by the grace of God. There is none who understands how holy God is and how sinful they are. Their mind cannot function. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how high their IQ is. They may be a professor at a university. They may be writing textbooks. They may be the most brilliant person in your zip code. But they don't get it, right? They do not understand spiritually. In earthly matters, they can be a brainiac. But in spiritual matters, the mind and the brain cannot understand. And every time I think of a spiritually dead sinner, I think of the show, The Walking Dead. How many of you guys have watched The Walking Dead? Just me. Okay. There's a few of you. Okay. I was like, ooh. Yeah. This Rick Grimes, right? Main storyline has to do with survival from zombies and the evilness of man. Uh, and it just reminds me that we're just dead. We walk. We have no direction, no hope. Right? We're like these zombies that walk, that have some kind of purpose. They're just roaming. They make zombie noises. They, they eat other people. They're like, <laughs> and they see something. They're like, I'm eating that. <laughs> and that's all they do, right? They are kind of alive, but not really, right? Beyond that, we have no further understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. We're like, we were like those zombies, just. And then Rick Grimes comes along, he says this quote, he goes, he has this southern drawing, he goes, after a few years of pretending he was dead, he made it out alive. That's the, that's the trick of it, I think. We do what we need to do, and then we get to live. No matter what we find in D.C., I know we'll be okay. This is how we survive. We tell ourselves that we all 
The Walking Dead. That's Rick Grimes. He tells himself that we are the walking dead, right? Okay, enough of that. But most people are like that. They just accept their state, right? And they're happy with it. And just to put in a real biblical cross-reference, 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, For a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. The word foolish comes from the Greek word that we derive the English word moron. That you have no mental capacity to process the data and their information of divine revelation that is being put before you. And he cannot understand them, right? And you know the difference between may and can. May is a word of permission. <coughs> may is also... Vince's fiance. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Anyways, may, may is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability. All right, you guys get that? May is a word of permission. Can is a word of ability. Paul says he cannot understand him. He can't. You're describing a sunset to a blind man. You're describing a symphony to a deaf person. They can't see it, they can't hear it, and they can't fully understand it because they are spiritually appraised. So Paul begins with the mind. Everything begins with the mind. Then he moves to the heart, right? There is none who seeks for God. There is none who seeks for God. This is verse 11. To seek God is a representative of a desire for God, a love for God, a passion for God. There's none who seeks for God. There's no desire for God. There's no love for God. There's no passion for God. And this includes every false religion as well. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, they're, they're so sincere as they're seeking God in their own way. But they're not. They're running away from God as fast as they can, and they succumb to this idol, which in their way of running away from the one true living God who has created all that there is. Right? There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. This verb, turned aside, means to lean in another direction. And the idea is you're going in the wrong direction on the wrong path. This, as Jesus will say, is in Matthew 7. Right? It's the broad path that is headed for destruction. Sin will always make you stupid. Sin will always cause you to make the worst decisions, spiritually speaking. And here is the autopsy of the spiritually dead sinner, and he always makes the wrong choice. He always turns aside and turns away from God. Prior to his conversion, Martin Luther once responded to, he once responded to a question of, do you love God? Where Luther replied, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Man may know how to pick a good house to live in. And when I say man, I mean woman too. Man, woman, mankind. He may know how to match up his tie with his suit. He may know how how to do math as a CPA. But spiritual choices, he will always and inevitably make the wrong decision. 
because his wires are not connected. He is spiritually dead. Then he goes on to say together, and the word together has the some summation feel of the entire human race. Together they have become useless. And useless is a very intentionally demeaning word. You are totally, completely useless as it relates to the kingdom of God. As it relates to eternal things, you make zero contribution whatsoever. Jesus in Luke 14 will compare it to dung. It's not even useful for the dung pile. The word useless here means worthless. It was used to describe milk that has turned sour, that no one could drink or take in. Then he says, there is none who does good. None. We are not considered unrighteous because the stain of sin is mixed together with our goodness. The indictment against us is more radical. In our corrupt humanity, we never do a single good thing. And this leads us to the second concept of total depravity. The complete inability of a person to please God and do good. The complete inability of a person to please God and do good. <clears throat> now, how are we to understand this? Because is it not in our daily experience that many good deeds are performed by unbelievers as well as believers? Right? And for those of you who are like, daily, daily, I don't... I don't see daily, well, maybe weekly, you know, weekly for some of you. But so you may help old ladies cross the street. Horizontally, you may occasionally do some charitable things. But from God's perspective, everything that you do is useless as it relates to commending yourself to God and gaining God's approval. The reformers wrestle with this problem and acknowledge that sinners in their fallen condition are still capable of performing what reformers call civil or works of civil virtue. And civil virtue refers to the deeds that conform outwardly to the law of God. Fallen sinners can refrain, can refrain from stealing and perform acts of charity, but these deeds are not deemed good in an ultimate sense. When God evaluates the actions of people, he considers not only the outward deeds in and of themselves, but also the motives behind these acts. Right? The supreme motive required of everything we do is the love of God. So a deed that outwardly conforms to law, God's law, but proceeds from a heart alienated from God, is not deemed by God a good deed. The whole action including the inclinations of the doer's heart, is brought under the scrutiny of God and found wanting. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards said, civic virtue is motivated by enlightened self-interest. And such outwardly virtuous acts are motivated not by a desire to please or honor God, but by a desire to protect our own interests. So we may learn, for example, that there are cir circumstances where crime does not pay. We may obey legal speed limits to avoid a speeding ticket. We are restrained from sinning to our full potential by law, culture, the prospect of conflict with other sinful people. And on the positive side, we might even do virtuous deeds 
that certain virtues actually, you know, pay in this world, plays a role. Absent in both cases is the motive of a heartfelt love for God. This is why Paul adds in the emphatic end of verse 14, there is not even one, right? And this is one proof that the Bible is the word of God because man would not condemn and write about himself like this, right? Man will always try to present himself better than what he is. Man will always overpromise and underdeliver. Man will always buy high, sell low. Man will always try to dress himself up better than what he is. And this indictment of the entire human race shows that this has to be the word of God because no man would bring this condemnation upon himself like this. <clears throat> now look at verse 13. In verse 13 and 14, the focus is upon the mouth. The mouth is simply a window into the heart. And there's an old saying, what, what's down in the well comes up in the bucket. And what's down in the heart comes out of the mouth. Right? Sometimes someone will say something and go, oh, you know, whoops, I can't believe I said that. And you have to think, like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't believe you hadn't said even more, right? Knowing what's down in this heart, it's unbelievable the restraint that we show. So verses 13, 14, the focus is upon the mouth, which brings indisputable evidence because it's so public it's so out in the open everyone knows what your mouth has been saying and then you look at verse 13 their throat is an open grave and when he says their throat he's talking about everyone's throat not just some people everyone's throat who is outside of the lord jesus christ outside of the kingdom of god and now the thing is graves are not left open so there's something going on here. Graves are sealed up. And the reason they're sealed up is because when people go walking by, if it wasn't sealed up, if it remained open, the stench and the decay and the wretchedness would be so odious and so foul that no one would even come within a mile of this burial plot. It's a mercy to cover it up. For it to be open, it's just like an open sewer line with filth that is being pumped out. Paul says their throat is an open grave. Right? They can't keep their mouth shut. The more they talk, the worse it is. The more they slander, the more they elevate themselves, the more they expound, the more they posture themselves as an authority, as an expert on every subject there is. The more they love to hear themselves talk, the more they are the hero of their own stories, the more they justify themselves, the more they put everyone else down. It's just an open grave. The throat here is lower than the lips or the tongue, and it's showing that it's coming out of the heart. It's coming out of the heart, through the throat, out of the mouth, launched by the tongue. This is an extraordinary picture that Paul is assembling here. And then with their tongues, they keep deceiving. It's not just that they deceive every once in a while. They are nonstop deception, right? And it began as soon as they were born. They came out of their mother's womb lying and deceiving. And the word deceiving here carries its 
It's a word that was used to bait a hook, so as to lure a fish in to bite it. It's, alluring, it's luring a prey by deception, by camouflage, and by deceit, right? We've all been a victim of it, and we all do it. And I'm amazed at, how, at, at times how tricky uh, we humans can be, right? As people will say certain things to other people, uh, it'll sound like a compliment, but and actually there's some kind of deception involved with it, right? In reality, we want them to do something for us. So we might say something like, you know, I might tell Andrew, like, dude, Andrew, you're the best driver that I know. If you could just pick me up, you know, I mean, your, your driving skills are excellent. You know, I'm, I feel like I'm floating on cloud when you drive, Andrew. I just, I mean, I would drive, but, you know, I mean, you're just the better driver, Andrew. Andrew Ma, would you just drive me? <laughs> and Andrew's like, why? I am a good driver. I will pick you up, even though it's way out of my way. We butter people up, and our tongues just keep deceiving. Andrew is a good driver, by the way. I, that's no lie. I'm not buttering him up. <clears throat> but it gets worse. The next line in verse 13, the poison of asp. And an asp is a snake. It's a serpent. The poison of asp is under their lisp. Ugh. Under their lips, I have lips. This poison is the venom that once the fangs are ejected and, and the bite into the person, and there's a bite into the person, they release the poison and it spreads death. Right? It's, it's the lips that are injecting death into other people to bring other people down, to destroy their reputation, to destroy their credibility, to destroy their prosperity, to take advantage for yourself. The poison of asp is under the lips. Even the imagery here of Satan, when he first slithered onto the page of scripture in Genesis 3, he lies, right? In John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He's the father of all lies. And the imagery there is of a snake and the serpent is picked up here. Again, this is, this is a part of the total depravity. This is, part of a, this is a part in total depravity. It's all being pumped out of the heart. And then in verse 14, it's the mouth, right? Whose mouth is full of, not partially full, but is full, filled to overflowing with cursing and bitterness. The cursings here refer to intense hatred, right? To curse someone is to desire to bring judgment down upon them. Bitterness is just open hostility against an enemy. Then, verse 15, their feet. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We go from the mouth and the throat and the lips and the tongue to the feet. Now, do you see how this is all connected? You can't have sin in one part of your life 
and then compartmentalize it and not have spread and not have it spread to the whole. So verse 15 says the feet, their feet are swift to shed blood. And this idea is of sprinting and of running, right? They're not slow. They're not hesitant. They're not dragging their feet. They're not shuffling. They're not walking. They're not even crawling. They're swift because the heart is driving them to shed blood. And the idea here is to kill. The animosity within the heart is now being carried out by the feet. There's no disconnect in body parts here. The idea of the feet is the course of their life, the direction of their life, the path that they have chosen to take in life. And then you look at verse 16. He continues with with this imagery of the path where all this path takes them. He goes, destruction and misery are in their paths. And I can't think of a more devastating audit of this path. Their life is a train wreck. Destruction speaks of the destruction that they cause to other people. The destruction to their business partners, the destruction to their spouse, the destruction to their children, the destruction to their friends, much, much less their enemies, or much greater their enemies. You don't sin and it not affect someone else. It just leaves destruction, right? The children are left to deal with it because the decisions of the father, the decisions of the mother, destruction and the result of what destruction brings is misery. Verse 17 continues the same imagery of the feet, the path of peace they have not known, not for one second. They certainly have no peace within themselves. That's why they're so restless to cause trouble for everyone else. They have not known peace with anyone else. They're just trouble looking for some place to happen. And in verse 18 now, verse 18 is the eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is categorically true. Not one drop of fear. There's no reverent, no, no revering of God. There's no taking God serious. There's no humility before God. There's no dread of the final day. There's no dread of the final judgment. There's no dread of hell. If there was, they would be running to Christ. Now, they may be losing sleep at night, and they may be traumatized, if they truly fear God, they would run to the Savior, and they would believe in him and trust in him. The mere fact that they remain in unbelief is proof, positive, that there is no fear of God. Right? You do not take God seriously. You do not take God's word seriously. Before their eyes carries the idea of your world, your whole worldview, your whole life perspective, Right? No matter where you look, no matter what you're looking at, there's no fear of God. Whether you're at the office, you're at home, whether you're at recreation, there's no fear of God. Right? This is a slam dunk case. How could anyone in their right mind argue against the doctrine of total depravity? And one of the most volatile controversies of the 14th century involved the doctrine of original sin. Right? And the combatants were the famous Bishop of Hippo, Aurelius Augustine, and the monk 
Pelagius. Denying original sin, Pelagius argued that human nature was created not only good, but unquestionably good. Human nature can be modified, but the modifications can be only on the surface of something, not in its deepest essence. So he's saying sin does not change our essential moral nature. He says we may sin, but we we remain basically good. We may sin, but we remain basically good. But with this kind of thinking, Christians and non-Christians like struggle with the stark reality of suffering and of the question of why do bad things happen to good people? But really, there is no one good. The only time when a bad thing happened to a good person was when Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who was perfect and sinless and perfectly met, who perfectly met all the requirements of God's law and was ready to give his righteousness to us that we would have a perfect standing before God, that he went to a cross, there he was lifted up to die. And there upon that cross, the sins of everyone who would believe in him were transferred to him. And him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange of the cross. The worst about me laid upon him, the best about him now to be laid upon me as he shed his blood upon that cross. And from there, he reconciled sinful man to holy God. And there is no other way for us to have a relationship with an infinitely holy God except through the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was his sin-bearing, substitutionary, vicarious death upon that cross. It was as if he took sinful man in one hand and holy God in the other hand, and he brought the two together through his death. And by that death, he satisfied the righteous righteous anger of God and appeased his wrath towards all who would believe in him. This is the only time when something bad happened to someone good. But please don't misunderstand me by thinking, okay, we're bad, and that's why bad things happen to me. The focus and the question should really be, why did something good happen to someone bad? That is our question. What did we do in order to be saved by Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Finally, we look at the final and third concept of total depravity, the condemned sinner. The condemned sinner. This is now the verdict. Right? The judge's gavel now comes down. He says, verse 19, now we know. Paul says that we all know this with certainty, absolute certainty, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And please note that the place of the law continues even in the New Testament. But the law reveals the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Every commandment 
in the law is a revelation of the holiness of God. Every commandment reveals our own sinfulness and that we have disobeyed and fallen short of the glory of God. The law is intended to be used for evangelical purposes, to evangelize. There are multiple uses of the law. Jesus, when he met the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? Right? Jesus used the law. And with another lawyer on another occasion, they asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus uses the law. And this is what Paul is doing here in our, in our passage today. Those who are under the law speaks of every person who has ever lived. In this sense, even Jesus was born under the law. And to be under the law means to have direct accountability to the law. Jesus was the only one to obey the law perfectly and to keep the law. And this he did on our behalf. But at this point, the entire human race, and the point is everyone outside of Christ is under the law, right? This is important. Everyone outside of Christ is under the law, is accountable to the law, is judged by the law, has been measured by the law, so that every mouth may be closed, right? No excuses, no self-justification, no self-vindication, no cry of mistrial. Every mouth would be closed because of the irrefutable indictment that the law brings. The law cannot save, but the law brings a person to the point where they know they need to be saved. The law is a tutor to take us to Christ. But it is the law that has shut every mouth. Everyone will be speechless. No one on the last day will be pounding the table and saying, you've got the wrong person. This wasn't true. The testimony of the law will be so, and the, and the books will be open, and the book of life will be open. Every mouth will be closed. All the world may become accountable to God, and they must answer to God in the judgment. And he concludes in verse 20, because by the works of the law, meaning attempts at self-righteousness, attempts to keep the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. If there was ever a text in the entire Bible that says that you cannot earn your salvation, you cannot work your way to heaven, it's in this text. The cross is not a ladder by which you pull yourself up to God by your own works. Right? No flesh will be justified in his sight. To be justified is to be declared the righteousness of God and find perfect acceptance with God in heaven. He concludes, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right? This is a closed case. This is why everyone needs the, law, uh, needs the Lord. This is why everyone must be born again, or you will not even see the kingdom of God. Mark 16, 16 says, 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe will be condemned. And this is why you and I must tell others about Christ. This is why we've got to reach the world for Christ. In Romans 8, 1 through 8, says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And this should bring such a sense of humility and gratitude and praise to every one of our hearts that we will be out from under this indictment, right? The noose was around our neck. We were at the gallows. We were ready to put the hood over our head and our face. And they were ready to remove the floor beneath us. And we were about to be hung. And then God intervened. He sent his son to die in our place, that we would be set free. If the son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Without a quickened awareness of our depravity, we are Pharisees at best though most of us are far worse, right? The best we can approach is a religious performance that brings glory to us and leaves us looking down on everybody else, just the way many Christians today look down on the rest of society, right? The Pharisee gazing down on the abortion doctor and and the pervert. Jesus knew Pharisees well, and he didn't like them. Far better to him was the sinful woman who burst in at the home of a Pharisee named Simon and threw herself at Jesus' feet. Jesus said to him, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is that was in Luke seven. All ingratitude drives the true Christian life and draws us joyfully to God's grace in Christ. It is from the pit of our lost condition that we gaze up toward a God so high and perfect in His in His holiness. But from that vantage point, 
we come to fully see at least one of those four dimensions of the cross that Paul would long to have us know, right? And that one dimension is its height. The, the cross of Christ would then rise up to span the full and vast distance that marks how far short we are of the glory of God. And the more we see our lost condition, the more the cross becomes exceedingly precious in our eyes. It is said in Isaiah 12, 1-2, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Salvation. That is the good news to total depravity. So even though I'm a bearer of bad news today, we have hope. And I'm excited to hear and transition over to salvation next week as Tony prepares to be up here and we get to hear the good news. Pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful for you and your word. And as we continue to see just our fallenness and just our brokenness and that every aspect of our, our body, every fiber in it, Lord, is corrupted. This was our state. This was who we were. We were dead in our trespasses. But Lord, you gave us hope through your son, through through Jesus Christ, through you, Lord. We are so grateful to have a new life and to have hope and that it doesn't end with us just being corrupted, but there's far greater hope that we look forward to. And Lord, we just ask that you would just help us reflect on all that we have learned and have a much higher view of the cross, Lord. We thank you for your sacrifice, and we pray all this in your name. Amen.